Welcome to Curious and Candid, conversations with those in pursuit of more. Today's guest is Joe Connolly. Joe is the head coach of sports performance at Arizona State University. Joe, welcome to the podcast. Thanks for having me. We've been bouncing back and forth trying to get this thing done for probably about a month or so, so I'm excited to be here. For, for sure. Uh, I think actually I when I reached out to you just to confirm that you got the email uh, earlier today on Instagram, the first time I touched base with you was back in July. Then yeah. I moved from I moved from Iowa to Colorado, so I've basically taken three months off from uh, podcasting just to kind of uh, adjust to to uh, a new life uh, out here in Colorado. So uh, thanks for being flexible. I'm, I'm looking forward to get getting uh, getting after it here with you, Joe. So um, the first question I want to ask you, Joe, is how do you start your day? Is there any specific routine or ritual you like to stick to on most days and most mornings? Yeah, you know, I, I have to get up probably earlier than I would like, you know, on in a perfect world. Um, so, you know, I, I know the trends nowadays, you know, the sunlight, the, you know, the, the coffee, keep it a little later in the day. But, but for me, um, my alarm goes off at 345. Uh, and I'm, you know, I, I, I brush my teeth, I get changed. I usually have some, uh, athletic greens, a hard boiled egg and a protein muffin, and I'm on my way, uh, you know, right to work. And then I'm rolling all day long. You know, we meet with the staff, uh, at 5.00 AM, our first lifts at six, we got to get everything set up in the meantime and make sure everything's organized and ready to roll for the players when they come in and, that's that's kind of how my morning goes just about six days a week. Okay. Now, um, 3.45 a.m. is very early, uh, but I want to talk about um, the 5 a.m. Uh, meeting or meetings that you said you have before your athletes come in and you kind of get after the uh, the, the training of, of your athletes. What, what does that 5 a.m. meeting consist of? Um, is it something that you have you know, five days a week, six days a week. What is kind of the purpose of that 5 a.m. 5 a.m. meeting for you and the rest of your your staff and, and coaches? Yeah, I, I you know, for me, it's a it's a organizational checklist um, just to know that everything maybe we discussed the previous afternoon um, is is completed. It's ready to go. Uh, a lot of times, you know, my I, and I even share this with my staff. A, a lot of that meeting is for me just organizationally to know, you know, we go through the lift, even though we've gone through it a bunch of times, we'll go through each exercise. We make sure um, all of our athletes, you know, top weights are correct. We, you know, any, anything that comes up from an injury perspective, how to progress or regress those athletes for a given exercise or a, a, a given block of the training environment. Um, it's just an organizational meeting to make sure that my crew and, and, and myself are kind of all on the same page for the training session. Hmm. Now, is that uh, meeting something that uh, you've always done since you were like in a, in a head coaching position? Or is that something that you kind of realized through years of experience that, hey, this is something that we need to do or, or I need to do maybe more uh, specifically put? I think it's there's probably been a metamorphosis throughout, you know, the 16 years or so that I've been doing this. Um, 
I think 2012 was my first year as a, as a head strength and conditioning coach. Before that, I was an assistant. Um, and, you know, that it's one of those things where the more organized you are, the more prepared you are, both as an individual and as a member of a, of a team. Uh, I think that that just really helps everybody be on the same page. It creates the buy-in. There's no hesitation in coaching or tactics or queuing for exercises. And it allows my, my staff to kind of coach free and, and, and be who they are and do a good job and know that, you know, they're doing what, what I want them to do, what, what we all want to do. And, and that's try to better our athletes. Awesome. Okay. Um, What's your favorite book, Joe, or podcast? Now, I know that that's kind of a tough question for some of us that are really into reading or into podcasts. So if there's a couple books that you kind of want to throw out there, maybe one, maybe specifically for, uh, you know, strength and conditioning purposes, and then one that's maybe just like an all-time favorite book that you just love. Um, and then if you do listen to podcasts, uh, you know, is there a favorite or a couple that you really enjoy? Just however you kind of want to take that uh question yeah i mean i'm a i'm an avid avid reader um i read every night before i go to sleep um that's a different type of reading for me there's kind of a purpose it's almost an unplug style of reading so a lot of times before bed i like to read fiction um spy novels things like that you know i obviously you know the jack Carr series are great um and then there's a Another series um, that I've been reading that's similar that I that I really like, um, and then as far as I mean, the number of strength and conditioning books that I have, I have a library, uh, and I've read them all. And I think the biggest thing for me with with books and and just different people's philosophies on sports performance in particular is that you have to take it with a grain of salt. I think what a lot of people do is they read one book and then their hook, line and sinker into whatever that is for however long for me, you know, over the course of time with the amount of amount of information that I try to take in and, and learn from, it doesn't necessarily change my philosophy a whole lot. It, it, it may tweak it, or I may look for things where I can add into our system to benefit our system, but it doesn't create a wholesale change, you know? And, and I think that's, that's super important. Um, I mean, you name it, any, anything by shoot. I mean, I, I can't even tell you, like, you know, you go back you say super training, right? Like, or uh, anything by Bomba or anything by Vermeil or anything by Boyle or anything by, I mean, you can write down the list of, you know, kind of the OGs of strength and conditioning and, and sports performance in general. Um, Derek Hansen's great now. He's got a lot of good stuff about sprint mechanics and sprinting. And, and um, you know, I listen to Buddy Morris. I, I was fortunate enough to work for guys like Joe Ken and Craig Fitzgerald. Um, and it's just – it's one of those things where I I think the most important thing is that regardless of how long you've been doing it or regardless of, you know, what your quote unquote philosophy is in regards to training that you're continually seeking out knowledge to try to improve. And, you know, everybody knows now in today's day and age that 
man, we get a lot of information fast and you have to be able to disseminate that information, whether it be social media or the use of the internet and figure out how that information can help your system, but also how that information can help your athletes. So for me, I think it's just really important to stay on the cutting edge um, of everything and then be able to educate and teach and convey some of those different tactics to the athlete and, and also utilize them yourself, try them all first. You know, I'm constantly sort of reevaluating my process on a daily basis so that, you know, I can know what works and what doesn't for me personally, and then hopefully be able to convey that to the, to the athletes to try to benefit them in their situations. Hmm. Um, now the Jack Carr series, uh, he's, uh, I know that's like a pseudo name, I believe is how you kind of put that, but he's a former uh, Navy SEAL. Is that correct? Yeah, that's right. Yep. And he, you know, obviously served, served his time and then sort of got into fiction novels. And um, I, I just, I like it because it's, it's super interesting for me. Um, you know, he obviously had the Amazon prime series too, that came out. James Reese is the guy, uh, the lead character. And um, so I finished those up. I actually read them twice. You know, I, I liked him so much. I think he's got five or six books. I think it's five books. I read all five and then I read them all again. And then, um, but it's one of those things that if it's a good novel, if it's a good fiction novel, a lot of times reading that before bed isn't the greatest thing in the world because you kind of get kind of get tied up in it and then you're not getting the sleep you need. But um, there's often many nights where I'll read the same sentence for a couple of days in a row because I'm, I'm out before, you know, before I'm even done with it. Very, very cool, uh, Joe. OK, uh, next uh, question here, uh, just to kind of keep the ball rolling. What uh, life lesson, Joe, have you learned or been taught in the last year? Now, you know, I'm sure there's probably constantly life lessons that you're being reminded of, especially within your profession, but um, maybe uh, outside of the professional realm, or it can be in the professional realm, however you want to take it. Um, but what's something that you really feel like you've learned or maybe been reminded of within this last year in terms of uh, life lessons? It's a great question. Um, I think for me, you know, I don't, I don't know if you're aware that was a, there was a change in leadership uh, for at Arizona State uh, in the head in the head coach seat. Um, pre, you know, previously I worked for Herm Edwards for uh, the last five years, and and now Coach Kenny Dillingham is now in that seat. And a fairly atypical thing happened uh, for me where I was retained. Um, I got to keep my job and, and, and in my profession, oftentimes when the head coach changes, everybody changes. And I think the main catalyst for that was, and, and what I learned the most was that the relationships with your athletes matter the most. And I think um, a, a big reason why uh, I was retained and kept, kept on and, and, and able to stay was because of that relationship. Those players went to bat. Uh, for for myself and my staff because they knew that we were on their side we care about them and we want them to get better and they know that you know our process is tight it's it's ironclad and and, and it works and and they they were able to convey that you know that it was a tumultuous few days uh when when coach Dillingham did come over you know and take over but um ultimately we were able to be retained so 
just relationships. I think it's super important. And oftentimes, and in, in, in certainly in my profession where everything's going so fast and you have a bunch of different things on your plate, just slowing down from time to time and having a conversation and, you know, just simply asking an athlete how he's doing or how his day's going, I think is just so important because, you know, they're good at hiding things too, just like, just like probably we are. And everybody has something going on. And, and oftentimes if you can reach that athlete through a simple conversation, uh, I think it, it really benefits that relationship and, and it helps you find out their why, which can help you motivate them and drive them in the future. And, and, and I, I think that's, you know, a lot of times people get caught up in the rah-rah and the hoo-hoo, which is great. That's important, right, in, in what we do. But if there's no real backing to that in regards to the relationship and, and the why and the care, then, you know, it's just fluff. Okay. I want to I wanna ask you, uh, obviously, anybody that is familiar with, you know, college football, NFL, they've heard the uh, the name Herm Edwards. I mean, he's been an analyst. He played in the NFL. Um, seems like a really a class act individual. Very humble uh, from, you know, seeing him on TV. But for, so the first thing I want to kind of pull back with with this, uh, Joe, is um, how did you uh, get connected with Herm? How did, how did you build that relationship? How did you guys get connected? Um, and then I'll, I'll kind of go from there. Yeah, it was uh, a previous relationship that I had um, with a with a with a mentor of mine that sort of connected some dots for me. Um, at the time, I was at University of Massachusetts as the head coach for sports performance, or I guess director of sports performance was my official title. Um, and I ended up coming out and interviewing here, and I interviewed against four or five other people um, for the job. And the interview we had was, was pretty amazing. There was a, there was sort of a connection, you know, between the two of us in, in regards to our philosophy on things and how, how that aligned uh, very quickly. And it, and it was funny when we were talking, you know, we, uh, we sort of like kept getting closer to each other and started writing down notes as we were going, he was asking questions and I was giving responses and then, you know, asking follow-up questions and we sort of came up with a plan um, from a, from a sports performance perspective, it just, just kind of right then and there. And that, and that, that grew and developed over the course of time. Uh, he was a, a, an avid trainee, you know, he was always in the weight room. He beat me in, you know, I get up at three forty-five, and he would beat me in most days. And he spent about two hours in the, in the weight room in the morning. So we got a chance to catch up each and every day. Um, so we had a great relationship, you know, it, it was, a, it was, a, uh, it was a good experience for me, somebody that has been through all the different situations and, and all the different, different types of teams and different types of environments that he had been in. Um, he was, he was great to just sit and listen to and, and, and learn from. Yeah. Okay. So you're, you're talking about relationships and I, I'm thankful uh, and, and, and glad that you brought this up because it doesn't matter if you're in, in strength and conditioning or you're in public education like myself, whatever sector uh, of a career that you're in, um, you know, uh, relationships, I believe is, is everything, right? So I, I love this topic. So I just want to touch on a little bit more and then we'll, we'll, we'll move on. So you had this great relationship with Herm. 
uh, sounds like you guys had great chemistry and, and synergy and all that as, you know, uh, coworkers and, and things of that nature. Now, what, what was it like? What is it like when, like you said earlier, uh, the coach, uh, is, is fired or let go or whatever that, uh, official terminology is, uh, within the, the, the college, uh, sports realm. Um, what was it like for you to kind of, you know, have Herm as that, that, uh, advocate for you and, you know, have that support and have that great relationship. And then the next day he's gone, there's kind of a new regime that comes in. Can you kind of just talk about, I know there's the professional side of this, uh, but, uh, you're also a human being. You've got feelings, you've got emotions. I know you're supposed to be a big, tough guy as a strength coach, but just walk us through a little bit of like the other side of, of this profession of like, when there is a relationship like you had with Herm Edwards, where it's like, Hey, he's here today. He's gone tomorrow. And then you're kind of in flux of like, does my, do I, and my, my team have a job anymore? So can you walk us through those few tumultuous days? Kind of, as you uh, said earlier. Yeah. I mean, I'll preface this by saying that it's what we signed up for, right? Like we know that we're in this profession and it's a here today, gone tomorrow. What have you done for me lately profession? Right. And, and that, so that's, that's kind of a given, anything can happen in any, at any given time. And, um, but, it, but it certainly was challenging for me uh, in regards to my mindset for training. And, and it's funny, all the things I preach and all the things I say to, to the athletes on a daily basis, right? The question that I sort of came to was, are you really about all the, all these things, right? The consistency on a daily basis, the, um, you know, the, the mindset, the, all the, all the different sort of variables that, that we try to instill in our athletes when, when things are going smooth and it's easy, it's easy to be that sounding board and, and use those. And, but in reality, deep down, do you really believe and do you really convey and are you really about a lot of those things? And, and for me, um, that's kind of what I sort of leaned on. Uh, it, and ultimately what my mindset was for, for the, the changeover was this is a completely new job. I, I literally cleaned out my office one day and brought everything back in the next day. I changed parking spots that I used to park in previously to a new parking spot. I, I threw out everything we did and started fresh because it was all about the new head coach's vision was all about coach Dillingham's vision and what he wanted and how we could help facilitate that vision, which was, you know, m maybe a little bit different than what the previous head coach's vision was. Um, and, and so it's like ripping a bandaid off and starting over. And that to me was the best way for me to sort of deal with a lot of the, a lot of that stress. Once we knew, you know, we were staying, um, but, you know, like I said, there was there was about three days uh, where we weren't sure, you know, I was working as hard as I could to make sure that, you know, Coach Dillingham knew what we were all about and, and you know, that we wanted to stay and, and that, you know, 
that we were constantly trying to evolve and do a good job. And, and he, he believed in us and I, I can't thank him enough for, for keeping myself and, and my staff here. And it's been, it's been a terrific uh, transition. You know, I, uh, he's, he's a phenomenal coach. He's got tremendous energy. I think our, our philosophies align. He's taught me things um, that, you know, he brought from previous institutions that now we're incorporating into our process and into our program. And I think that the sky's the limit for, for what, you know, what we're going to be able to accomplish here over the next, however many years, you know, however long that takes. Um, but it's, it's been a great, it's been a great situation for myself, my family, my staff, and coach Dillingham's been tremendous. I, I, I can't thank him enough. Cool. All right. Um, last question here, uh, before we kind of get into your backstory, Joe, uh, do you have a favorite quote, mantra or word? Yeah, it's actually, uh, I should show you it's hanging. I have a little post-it note, um, on my monitor over here. It's, uh, the happiness of your life depends on the quality of your thoughts. Mm. And I think that, um, I love that. And the, the second one underneath is do not indulge in dreams of having what you have not. And I think that's also really important, whether you're talking about your professional life or your personal life. Uh, I think those two quotes reign true for, for anybody. Um, and they're there. They're always there. And I, I you know, th those are more uh, stoic sort of philosophies um, that that I, I sort of ran into at one point in time. And I, I honestly, I can't remember exactly who, but um, I, I really, I really think those are great. And you know, everybody sort of teeters on the fence of certain things. You know, you hear somebody did this, and you're like, ah, you know, but. but it, it doesn't affect you. It, it, you know, that's their life. Good for them, you know, and just being happy for, for other folks that they, they get things and, and, but continue to work and continue to stay on the path for yourself. I think is super important. Yeah. Great quotes. Love it. Okay. We're going to, we're going to dive in here to uh, uh, your backstory. So I want to kind of start uh, at the beginning. So talk about where you like actually grew up, Joe. Um, what was your, what was your younger years like? Uh, I'm assuming you probably played sports. Uh, you know, did you care about school or did you just go to school because, you know, you had to stay eligible to play sports like most of us? Um, what was your relationship with your parents? Any, uh, you know, mentors or anybody, you know, coaches, teachers, anybody that you feel like really played a, a positive, power, powerful impact in your life when you were younger uh, to kind of catapult you forward? So just kind of paint that picture for us of those younger years up to about high school and then we'll transition from there. Okay. Yeah, no, I, so I grew up in um, a town, Barnstable, Massachusetts, um, that it's on Cape Cod. And a lot of people, you know, when they think of Cape Cod, they think of vacation homes and, and wealthy folks, but there's a, there's a really large population of, of blue collar uh, traditional Cape Codders that, um, that live there year round. Uh, and so, you know, my father was a mechanic, he was an aircraft mechanic. He worked at the airport. Uh, my mother was a nurse and, you know, two parent home. I have two older sisters, uh, who are much older. Um, they're seven and 10 years older than me. 
and pretty, pretty traditional, you know, blue collar home, nothing, nothing extravagant, you know, sort of had to work for everything we had. My, my parents did a phenomenal job of discipline and raising me. And, and, you know, my father was a, was a worker. Uh, he still is. And, you know, he, he'd work five, six days a week and he'd still have, have time and enough energy after work to, you know, play catch with me or, you know, shoot hoops or whatever it was. And, you know, I don't know as though he ever conveyed that to me, like in a conversation, but from, from a leading by example, just, this is what we do. Um, this is, you have to work to get things done. And I just think that, you know, it may have taken some time and some years to go by before I sort of realized that the importance of that, but that's one thing he instilled in me. Um, my mother was, uh, was hard on me. She was the athlete in the family. Um, she used to beat me in basketball until I was about 11 or 12. She's, she's a really good athlete. And, um, she, you know, she worked, um, but she also kept the house, you know, in order. It was, it was old school, you know, and, and she was, she was tough on us. You know, curfew was curfew. You had to be home when the streetlights came on, you know, whether, you know, I was playing street hockey or playing, you know, basketball or riding bikes or whatever it was, you know, it was, Hey, get the heck out of the house and I'll see you, you know, at five o'clock or whenever it is. And don't, don't hurt yourself. Don't get in trouble. Don't do anything stupid. And um, so that was kind of the younger years uh, played a lot of different sports. You know, it's funny. My parents pushed me to, to do a lot of things. Uh, when I was younger, I wasn't, uh, I, I, I was a hesitant. Um, I was always a bigger, a bigger kid and I was pretty athletic. I was good at sports, but for whatever reason, I was hesitant and, and to do certain things. So for like, for example, we had, I remember to this day, we, you know, little league, right. Little leagues from, I think 10 years old to 12 years old or nine years old to 12 years old. And I didn't want to try out. I was, I was scared, you know, I was the big leagues. Right. And, and um, so I played farm baseball and, you know, I hit, I think I hit like 20 home runs, you know, I was just, I was, it, it wasn't. And finally, when I was 12, my, my mother said, no, you are going to try out. She forced me to do that and put me in that position. And um, I remember playing little league and, and having similar success, you know, and it was one of those things where, um, she wanted me to try a lot of different things, whether it was lacrosse or football or hockey uh, or baseball or soccer. Um, she wanted me to try everything and she pushed me to try everything, uh, which I think, you know, in today's day and age, a lot of young athletes are lacking, you know, the, the variety of, of movement and sports that, you know, today's day and age, a lot of people are in the specificity. They play one sport and they want to be, elite at that one sport, but they're 12, you know, you, you gotta, you gotta play a lot of different sports and, and try a lot of different things. Um, and, you know, I was, I was fortunate to, to play three sports all the way through, you know, high school. And um, 
that that's to me I think is super important I, I I'm pretty sure I had skates on playing hockey from the time I was two maybe three and I played all the way through college and and sort of got a little burnt out from it but or excuse me all the way through high school and got burnt out from it um, but it, you know played some football you know played bas- played a ton of basketball uh, played baseball played baseball in college it's one of those things where they just wanted me to always be doing something. And I think, um, you know, for me as a, as a dad, that's something I want, you know, my, my kid currently, and, and, you know, I'm, a, I'm having another one. So that, you know, that go, go, they're, they're going to do a lot of different things too, you know? And, and the other thing that I think, you know, before we sort of get into high school is that if I, if they made me do something, they made me finish it. I I could never quit and I could never just say, Hey, I don't want to do this anymore. It's like, well, hold on a second. We signed up for this. And, and a lot of it was, Hey, we paid good money for this. You're going to do this and you're going to finish it. And I think that sort of that ability to do that and learn those, those lessons as a young as a young man, young boy was, was really important. Hmm. Okay. Now uh, talk, talk to us a little bit, Joe, about school. Was it kind of like I mentioned earlier, something that you just did because you had to, to stay eligible for sports or did you thoroughly enjoy academics? I'm assuming your mom was probably pretty stern about you getting good grades. Like touch on that for a quick second, if you don't mind. Yeah. I mean, so for me, that's, that's a really important part of my story and my history. So early on in life, my mother always read to me. Uh, she read books every night before bed. And I remember getting into first grade and I had a, uh, you know, you get tested. This is back in the, you know, the eight, you know, the late eighties early nineties, you get, you know, they, they test you. Right. And I had a, I had a really high IQ, but, uh, and I really, really broad vocabulary, but I had a really hard time learning how to read. So I was diagnosed with a learning disability. Um, and back in the day, there wasn't as many resources for that. And it was a real struggle for me, um, really all the way through high school. Um, I had to, you know, constantly either go into a separate class or, you know, whatever it was. And it was a huge point of contention for me. Um, it was a, it was quite frankly, an embarrassment, uh, for me. And I remember, you know, them telling my mom that, you know, Hey, he needs to be medicated or, you know, he, um, he needs to go to extra tutoring and read, you know, in, in certain subjects in English. And, um, I remember she held strong on the medication part, which I appreciate, which we never did. Um, she knew that I was an active individual, so I needed a physical sort of release, uh, to, to help calm my mind, which, you know, was always sports. And she kept pushing me in that direction. And then, you know, obviously they, they ponied up for some, some tutoring and some, some learning, uh, in regards to processes for how to learn. And then 
all the way through till I was, I think, a sophomore in high school. Um, you know, this is this is super embarrassing because, you know, I was this jock, right? I was this guy, you know, the six foot two, 220 pound guy in high school that played all the sports and was excelling, but really struggled in school. And I love science and I was pretty decent in math, but English was a real struggle. I, I, I still struggled to read. I still struggled to write. And, and um, I had to take this class when I was a sophomore in high school and it was a separate class and it was me and I think four other young guys. And I had this teacher, Miss Rockcliffe, and I'm not even sure the exact name of whatever technique she used to teach us how to read properly. But I took that class for an entire year. It was in like the, the back of the library, you know, and I would kind of like sneak out and like, you know, leave my friends at the locker and be like, yeah, no, I'm going to, I'm going to social studies or whatever. But I was really going to reading class and everybody else was fine. Everybody else could read, but me and, and these four or five other individuals and so I, I, I kind of went in there and after that year, I sort of had a step-by-step process for what, how I, I could accomplish that process. And I, and I, I learned it and um, I haven't really looked back ever since, but I mean, back in the day, it was rough. You know, I remember being in seventh and eighth grade and my mom telling the teachers that no he's not leaving he's going to stay in that class because the other class you know they mixed you in with some really really you know some 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 kids with issues right and um there was no education it was more babysitting and and i remember sitting in the back of that class being like what am i doing here you know like i'm not getting any better in this class i need to be in the regular class. And, you know, I remember my mom going to a, a, a parent's day and, and, and advocating for me, um, which was, you know, really important for my development, you know, and, and, and that's, I think that's, that's important. And, and then, and it's funny when I graduated from high school and whether it was because they wanted to pad their statistics or what, um, I remember I had an IEP, which is essentially that learning disability, you know, flag. And when I graduated from high school, they said, you're, you're cured. You don't, you don't have a learning disability anymore. We've cured you. Uh, so in college, I didn't have an IEP. You know, I had to take tests that were timed just like everybody else. And, and, and I was fine. But um, I just always thought that was funny that all of a sudden you're cured. You know, everything's good. And uh, away you go. But it, you know, I went on to um, graduate from college in four years and I also went on to get a master's degree and I, I graduated uh, magna cum laude from my master's program. And I remember, you know, seeing some of those teachers I had that really gave me a hard time first, second, third, fourth, fifth grade. And I always go up to them, shook their hand and I said, hey, I just want to let you know that, you know, I just got just got done with my master's degree and, you know, I, I had perfect grades and I, you know, just wanted, I just want you to know that. And that was kind of a big sort of like closure for me in my life that 
I kind of closed that door of struggle and stress and anxiety and lack of confidence and moved on. And um, it, it was an interesting story, you know, and I wouldn't change it for the world. I think it's, uh, it's important for me that I went through that. And I think that all those troubles and, and, and issues and situations sort of, mold, you know, helped me mold who I am today as, as a man. Yeah. Very cool, Joe. I love that. Um, now, <clears throat> obviously your parents, it sounds like were a huge influence on you when you were younger. Uh, you had that uh, awesome teacher that kind of uh, helped you uh, grasp, uh, you know, reading. She was very impactful. It sounds like, was there a coach or anybody else that you feel like really, uh, you know, um, gave you a, a boost when you were a teenager or really positively impacted your life uh, around that, that time frame, or was it your parents and that, that teacher specifically? Yeah, I think it was probably my parents and that teacher because they were the most consistent. Um, I think that for me, I played so many different sports and, you know, you know, you get the three seasons, right. But I, I was playing more than that. Like there was times where I'd be playing hockey and basketball at the same time, or, you know, lacrosse and baseball at the same time or football and track or whatever it was where um, I was doing a lot of different things. And um, I had a lot of different coaches, but it's, it's strange because none of them really, for whatever reason, stick out in my mind that were so incredibly influential um, for my memory. You know, I had a lot of good coaches. Uh, I remember, you know, my my little league coach was was really good. He used to smoke cigars and throw BP at the same time, and and uh, he was fun, you know. But it was it was just one of those things where I, I really didn't have anybody until sort of high school hockey. Um, I had a, um, I had a JV coach that was also the assistant varsity coach. He, and he was Canadian, um, coach Stevenson. And he was really, really, really hard on us. Uh, I remember like hating him because he was so hard on us and he demanded, he demanded, perfection and he would get so frustrated when we wouldn't do it it was almost like he didn't realize he was dealing with 14 to 17 year olds you know and um now looking back on it as a coach and having coached for a long time I I, I sort of learned from from his mindset and mentality but I also appreciated it because he pushed us so hard um he always ran the the conditioning at the end of hockey practice and you know he was always tough on us at practice, and and I I always appreciated that. Now, in the time, and at the at the time, I I didn't appreciate it, yeah. but now I do. Very cool. Okay, now let's uh, talk about uh, because obviously you're in the strength and conditioning world, which involves weight training. Um, when did you first uh, start lifting weights? Uh, I'm assuming it was for sport performance. Uh, talk to us a little bit about that. And, and when was it, was it like the first time you ever went into the school weight room or when was it, uh, uh, Joe, that you feel like you, you really fell in love with, with the iron, with, with, with lifting weights, with kind of the whole sport performance, uh, category, so to speak. 
Yeah, I, I remember our – it changed while I was in high school, but I remember as a freshman we had – you know, this is back in the day before these big giant facilities and all this stuff. We had an old boiler room, and it was a dirt floor, and they had, like, plywood on the floor, and, there, you know, there was a bench press, and there was a couple machines and different things like that, trap bar. And I remember going in there and being like, what is this? Like, what is this? And I remember working out in there um, and just having no idea what I was doing, just seeing somebody do something and being like, I'm going to do that. And then seeing somebody do something else, be like, I'm going to try that. And then uh, I remember one summer they actually built us uh, a nice little weight room in, in our high school. And I remember going in there with some buddies and we didn't know what we were doing. And I remember it just kind of happened where it was me and, and four of my friends. And they're like, let's, let's squat. I was like, all right, you know, let's, let's, let's try this thing out. And I remember not really having any experience at all, but squatting and just keep adding weight. And just, I don't remember if I had good technique, I probably didn't or anything, but I just remember adding weight and squatting 315 when I was like a sophomore in high school and realizing like none of my friends could do that you know we they were like after whatever after 185 they were off they were done they were like let's let's see what joe can do you know let's 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 see how far we can you know try to break him and um so i distinctly remember doing that and then sort of realizing from some of the older athletes you know that i that i played sports with in high school that the weight room was important. I remember one, one guy in particular named Justin Foster, who was a football player, a baseball player. I played baseball with him. And, um, and I remember he was great. Cause he's like, listen, I go every day. If, if we're not at practice, I'm going in there and I'm going to do something. I remember jumping in with him and working out with him. And that was sort of the first part of it um, when I figured it out. And then obviously in college, um, we had a, you know, a full-time strength coach and we had a full, full blown off season training, in season training. We were training 365 essentially. And it's funny. I, I remember enjoying that almost more than I enjoyed the sport I was playing. And I remember feeling the, feeling the, the instant gratification of accomplishment. Um, each and every time I went in there and did a little bit more or, you know, had better technique. And I remember the instant feedback from rep to rep. Um, my strength coach's name was Emil Johnson. And he was a, he's a friend to this day. He was a great, a great mentor for me in college. Um, and like I said, I played baseball, but he trained us like a football team. You know, we were doing the sprints and, and all the Olympic lifts and the strong and, and, and the power lifts and all the different different variables and and it was a little bit more archaic back then because we didn't have the information we have now but um i just remember loving that and it took me many years to figure out after that that you could actually like for whatever reason it didn't click for me i remember getting done with college and just getting muscle and fiction i call it muscle and fiction but it was muscle and fitness magazine and i remember reading that and seeing the workouts when I was done. So I was probably 21 at the time. 
and just, you know, doing that training program and going to Gold's Gym and, and, and seeing all those guys and trying to figure it out. But it didn't click for me that you could actually do that as a profession for a little while, um, which, you know, I'm glad I did figure it out. Okay, super cool. Now, um, I want to kind of ask you uh, and, and um, discuss uh, college a little bit here, and then we'll kind of get into your your, your professional uh, uh, story here a little bit more in depth, uh, Joe. But um, so where did you go to college? Uh, you mentioned you played baseball in college. Uh, and then, uh, you know, you, you uh, were, were uh, healed or fixed or whatever from your disability, according to your high school. So you, you, you were kind of uh, starting a new and, and a fresh, I would kind of think, in that perspective. So uh, talk about your, your college years. What was it like uh, being a college athlete? Did you enjoy that? Uh, I'm assuming that you partied. Maybe you didn't. Talk about maybe some of the social aspects of college. And then uh, what did you study? And uh, just kind of like wrap up what what those uh, four years was like for you uh, specifically. Yeah, it's there's 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 good and bad, but they're all experiences, right? Um, you know, I remember getting to college, and I don't think I called my parents for a month and a half. Um, I was so excited to be, you know, away and free. Um, you know, I was playing Division One baseball at University of Hartford in Connecticut, uh, which was a dream of mine. I was really, really excited about it. And but I was also really excited to be free and to be social. And, you know, it's a lot of the, a lot of the lessons I learned the hard way are lessons that I still try to convey to this day, because those first few years, albeit I was practicing hard and working hard and and lifting hard, but I was partying hard and that, you know, it didn't bode well for my future. Um, I remember gaining a bunch of weight. It was bad for my body composition, which ultimately was bad for my sport. And I made a lot of bad decisions, uh, a lot of them. And, you know, ultimately for me, my, my college athletic experience was great, but it was, it's also, um, I regret a lot of it. I think I could have been far more successful if I took things a little bit more serious mm-hmm. and, and it just took me a while to sort of grow up. And a lot of those, a lot of those practices, I, I, I probably could have been a little bit better shape than, than I was. Um, it was, it was, it was rough. And, and I, I was, uh, I would say mediocre, um, unfortunately. And I think my, my athleticism and my performance could have been far greater if, if I took things a little bit more serious. Uh, academically, uh, what did you study and and how was that? I know, I mean, I can relate with you. I, I almost got kicked out of college for partying and I could have could have put in a lot more effort specifically with that academics. But what did you study and what was the academic uh, life kind of like for you in, in college, uh, Joe? Yeah, so I didn't find 
my stride academically till I went back and got my master's. Mm-hmm. Um, so in undergrad, I studied criminal justice and sociology. And the only reason why I studied criminal justice and sociology is because so did the rest of the team. So we had all the notes, we had all the tests, we had all the papers. So I'll be honest with you. I did very little academic work when I was in college in an undergrad. And I did essentially the bare minimum to graduate in four years and not fail off the team. I think my cumulative GPA was two, five, something like that. And I remember having to go to study hall and do all that stuff. And, and it was, it was a bummer for me. And the main reason why I think that I sort of skirted my way through was because I just wasn't engaged in what I was learning. Um, I wasn't a hundred percent committed to those topics and some of those things. And I did enjoy the criminal justice component. Um, I still do. I think, you know, I did ride alongs with the state police and different things like that, that I, that I thought were, were a little bit, excuse me, more exciting uh, for me, but you know, I, the electives and, you know, I remember taking an Italian Renaissance class, like, you know, sitting in the back sleeping, it was a seven to 10 class on like a Wednesday night. I'm like, this is, this is horrendous. And in today's day and age, I wouldn't have been able to get away with what I got away with, you know, not going to class very often. I remember there was a few classes where I went the first day of class. I went to hand, take the midterm, hand in my paper and the final exam. So in a semester, I might attend the class four times. And that, you know, that's not, that's not ideal. It's not ideal for, for a learning experience, but at the end of the day, I got my degree. I got it in four years. And I remember cramming when I was a senior, I remember when I was a senior, I had to take 18 credits the last two semesters because I was behind and um, all my buddies, you know, they were seniors. They, they didn't, they didn't do a thing cause they had done it on the front end, but I waited, I waited till the back end and I had to, I had to scramble to get it done. Cause my, my parents, they said, listen, if you don't get it done in four years, we're not paying, we're not helping you in any way, shape or form to get it done past that. Mm-hmm. You know, I had a, a, a partial scholarship and, and, and some academic scholarships, believe it or not, but those run out, you know, and, and in baseball, they break it up a little differently back in the day. There wasn't a lot of scholarship money to go around. So it just, it was what it was. And um, yeah, I mean, it was an experience for me, but uh, there was a lot more social life than there was uh, academics. Okay. <laughs> um, so once you graduate college, how did life kind of uh, unfold for you and then kind of uh, tie that in for us uh, in regards to, you know, strength and conditioning, you, you go get your master's degree. And then it sounds like that's when things really kind of took off for you professionally. So, but as soon as you graduated college, what, what happened? How did, how did life uh, unfold for you, Joe? Yeah. What do you do? Right. You, you, you got to figure it out. You got to go get a job. You got to, you know, figure out how to live on your own. Um, and like I told you, I was never really all in on the criminal justice thing. And I think I sort of realized that probably after a year or two, 
um, while I was in college, but I was already so far in that I couldn't change. You know, I remember being a, a senior and thinking, Hey, maybe I want to do like physical therapy or something like that. And it's like, it's too late now. You got to finish what you started, you know? And so I did. So, uh, you know, I get out, I get done graduating four years. Uh, I messed around playing some different baseball leagues and, and things like that. And just worked odd jobs. You know, I was, I was doing some landscaping. I remember I worked at a liquor store, you know, just trying to figure it out. And do I want to, do I want to join the police force? Right. Do I want to do that? What do I want to do? And after about, I think about a year I settled on, Hey, I'm going to be a firefighter. I want to do that. So I went back uh, to my local community college and took the EMT class and also got on as a volunteer firefighter um, in my town. My, I have a the town I live in is actually a really big, large town. It has a, has a, a bunch of different villages within the town that all have different fire departments. And um, I got on, on in, in a, in Barnstable village and um, was a volunteer firefighter. They, they put me through the fire Academy. Uh, so I did that. And I, I really excelled uh, in that because it was physical. Right. It was it was learning interesting things and it was physical. And um, I really enjoyed that. Um, and then I, I sort of started working in the fire department a lot more. And I saw I love the the firefighting portion of it. But in in Massachusetts, predominantly also part of that is all the fire departments do all the 911 calls. So there's a really big medical component to it. And, you know, you could go get your paramedic, you know, you ride in the back of an ambulance far more than you ride in the back of a fire truck. And, you know, at, during this time in my town, it was the opioid crisis. Hmm. It was the opioid. They, there's an HBO special on my town. Um, so the majority of the time, what we were doing in the fire department was resuscitating drug addicts from opioids or, or heroin. And, you know, they start with opioids and they work their way to heroin and, you know, you're giving out Narcan, right. You're bringing them back and they're never excited when you save their life. Uh, it wasn't, uh, it wasn't a pleasant experience for me. And I have some really dear friends, really close friends that are still doing that to this day in my town. And, um, after a couple months, I was like, I can't do this. I have to find out what else I can do, uh, because I, I damn sure don't want to be stuck in this town as much as I love my hometown with all that going on. You know, I lost a lot of friends that I went to high school with, uh, to that. And I knew that somewhere in the back of my head, I always knew that I was destined to leave and destined to do something more important. And that voice sort of got louder and louder um, the older I got. And ultimately what it was, what I ended up doing was I, I dropped everything. I quit my job. I quit everything. And I enrolled in Bridgewater State University. And I had to beg to get in. Um, and I enrolled in 
strength and conditioning. They had it. They had a, a physical, um, physical education degree that was specific to strength and conditioning. And I remember calling Emil, who was my strength coach in college, and saying, "Hey, how did you start to do what you do? Like, what? Tell me what to do." And he was like, "Listen, you gotta, you gotta go back to school first and foremost. You have to get, you have to get a degree." And it just so happens that in Massachusetts, they're probably the two best strength and conditioning colleges in the country, which is Springfield College and then Bridgewater State. To me, Bridgewater State was really a, an adjunct to Springfield because our um, department head and, and lead professor, Dr. Ellen Robinson, was a Springfield grad. So she basically took that curriculum and a lot of those things and sort of tweaked it and made it great. And so I remember applying. And it was one of two things. So I was actually, I was dating my wife at the time. She's now my wife and we were living together and we were either going to do one of two things. We were either going to move to the Caribbean and bartend or I was going to get my master's degree and we were going to stay and I was going to finish that. And it was all predicated on whether I got into school or not. Hmm. And so um, I got into school and um I would bartend at a little restaurant that she used to waitress at uh, called Spanky's Clam Shack in Hyannis. And I would bartend essentially from five till 10, 30, 11 o'clock at night, sleep for a few hours, you know, get up. I had to commute. I had an hour commute to school and we had to do it in person. So I was commuting an hour there, an hour back when I was doing my, my program and I was able to, basically finished my curriculum in a year and a half. And the one thing I remember was I loved to study that subject. I loved everything about it. And I had no background in the physiology. I had no background in the, the anatomy, none of that stuff. And I had to work so hard to learn it all because it was so foreign, but I loved it. Mm. I loved everything about it. And there was like no question in my mind that, I was going to get it done and I was going to get it done. Right. Hmm. And, and I did. And, um, as part of that, the last semester, um, we had to do a internship and, you know, that was, that was mandatory as part of it. So you had to, what our, what our, what Dr. Robinson wanted us to do was basically go visit as many different college weight rooms as we could. So I went to visit Boston College and UConn and University of Massachusetts. And I went back to University of Hartford and uh, I went to Harvard University. Mm-hmm. And I, um, I met one of my best friends in the profession there. He was the head strength coach there, Craig Fitzgerald. And I remember we hit it off right from the start. And he's like, do you want to intern? And I said, I said, yeah. And now keep in mind all the while I'm competing on the Olympic weightlifting team at Bridgewater state, because that was part of my learning process too, um, which was huge. I'm trying to make ends meet. So I'm, I'm bartending at night. And I also did some, some training at a, a performance facility in my town and I'm commuting because where I live, is an hour one direction to Bridgewater State and an hour another direction to Cambridge to Harvard, and so that was 
that was a rough time. But I, again, I never once wavered. You know, there was a lot of nights, especially when I started interning where, again, I would keep that same bartending schedule from five to 10, 30, 11 at night. But I had to be up at 3 a.m. because I had to drive an hour to Cambridge. And then we would start at 5 a.m. at Harvard and I would work at Harvard till two or three in the afternoon, try to get out of there to beat traffic. Because, I mean, I don't know if anybody's familiar with Boston traffic, but it's not it's not anything you can you can get, you know, get from point A to point B in a, in a, in a, in a fashion that's appropriate. It, it takes forever. And if you get stuck in that traffic, you're there for four or five hours. So I would leave at two or three in the afternoon. And we would literally train teams that entire time. I wouldn't sit down, train teams, learn, um, clean the weight room. And then just do that every day, you know, Monday through Friday. And then, you know, maybe take the weekends off. I barely saw, my, my girlfriend, who's now my wife at the time, we were like two ships passing in the night, you know, and um, it was uh, it was all part of my journey. Um, but again, I never I never remember wavering because I was so committed to that end goal. Now, I want I'm very curious, uh Joe, in regards to, you know, you're, you're, you're kind of like, okay, you're, you're in this, you're in this uh, middle ground of kind of wandering after you graduated your undergraduate, right? Uh, you're trying to figure life out, figure things out. And, and then you kind of go in the direction of the firefighting. And then all of a sudden you're, you're going to be a strength and conditioning coach. What, what was the, the, the aha moment or what was the catalyst that kind of, you know, in your brain was like, okay, I'm I'm done with all of this stuff. I'm pursuing strength and conditioning. Like there had to have been something that made you kind of like click and say, I'm I'm going in this, in this again direction. And then once you got into, you know, your, your master's studies in strength and conditioning specifically, why didn't you waver? Why, why did you fall in love with it? What was that thing or those things that just kind of sucked you in, pulled you in and has kept you in there for over a decade now? It's funny. I don't. Rem I know there was a specific moment mm -hmm. that I was. I think I may have been in the gym. I used to go to a Golds, and then there was a a, a gym called Handler Health and Fitness uh, that was owned by Jeff Handler. And I remember working out and just saying, "Okay, that's it." It, it was like that's what I want to do. Like it wasn't a person, it wasn't, um, it wasn't anything. It was that I, I enjoy this. Like in my free time, like I said, like I would read magazines and I would read websites just for myself. Like, okay, Hey, are you doing the right stuff? Like, let me learn about nutrition and what, you know, all this stuff. Like, so it was just sort of, it just sort of happened. Mm. And, um, once I took that leap of faith to apply for school and I got in, I don't know what it was, but I just loved, I loved every second of it. I loved the, the practical portions where, you know, we had to teach strength training to the general pop in, in, at Bridgewater. I loved the Olympic weightlifting component where I could listen to Dr. Robinson. She was our, our, our Olympic weightlifting coach. And I was on a team with other, you know, Olympic weightlifters that are interested in that. And I just, 
And then, you know, I got to Harvard and I saw that. I think initially I wasn't sure whether I wanted to do collegiate training or, you know, athletic training in that regard or whether I want to do personal training. I just knew that I wanted to be in a weight room. Uh, I wanted to be in a gym. And, and then once I stepped foot in Harvard's weight room, I knew that that's where I was going. Um, and, you know, Craig Fitzgerald was obviously a huge part of that. Um, he's a, he is one of the most intense, um, relentless, unique individuals I've ever been around. And I love him to death. He's, he's a, a huge part of my career and my life. And he was constantly pushing me uh, to become a better coach, to become a better person, um, just like he was to his athletes. And he was like that with his whole staff. And that, that was, that was it, you know, and, and now it's, it's been like that ever since. Um, when you now we all know about Harvard in terms of their academics, right? Um, it's kind of the the gold standard here in America. Did you? Uh, I mean, I know for me, I I probably would have had a little like imposter syndrome, or just it would have been so surreal, uh, you know, stepping into to Harvard University uh, and having that opportunity to be a, an intern like you you did. What was it? A little bit surreal? Was there a little bit of imposter syndrome even though that terminology is something we use now it wasn't back then but you you get what i'm trying to get at uh what was it was it a little bit surreal at, at times at harvard and some of these other places in those earlier days or did you just kind of take with a grain of salt joe i think um certainly that the the name has a lot of clout right and you know i think that Initially, I was I was nervous because it was my first experience sort of in that environment. Um, but I remember just coaching like I remember, like from day one, just bringing kind of energy to the room and, and using my my limited knowledge to try to convey that to the athlete and you know, Fitz and Tim Mullen and Dan Perlmutter and Emily Saul, all the full-time staff members there gave me that outlet and, and appreciated it. And, you know, that was a rough, that to me, that, that was like uh, basic training for strength and conditioning. Cause you know, we had 42 varsity sports at Harvard, the most in the country and every single one of them trained in our facility. So and now keep in mind, they had three full-time strength coaches and one part-time strength coach and a slew of interns with 42 sports. So you want to talk about being busy. Like we, there was times where we would have four sports in the weight room at once. They had a huge weight room, which was awesome. Um, you know, you were bouncing back and forth. It was just go, 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 go. I love the energy. I love the, 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 the organization of the whole thing. Um, I just, I, I loved it all. Like the days would go by so fast and it was just, you know, I couldn't wait to get back and, and do it again, you know? And then plus at the time I'm training, you know, myself and, and, and seeing, you know, improvements because I'm learning new, new methods and new modalities and new exercises and all that stuff was just, I was eating it up and it was, it was, it was so much fun. 
from from those from that early uh, start in those early years, what was like the biggest uh, uh, lesson that you had to learn, or let's say that you know you were doing something in the weight room in terms of your your coaching style or uh, whatever, and another coach uh, came up and said, "Hey, Joe, like you need to you need to change this, you need to correct this." Like, is there something when I asked that in that vein? Uh, is there something that kind of pops up in your mind immediately of like? you had to kind of change or make an adjustment quickly in those early uh, years in terms of like coaching style or something of that nature. Yeah. I think, you know, it's a couple of things. It's things that I deal with now with our, with our interns and it's um, you know, your coaching voice, hmm. you know, you don't want to, the nice thing about Harvard for me was that as an intern, I could coach as hard as I wanted. And because the other coaches were so busy, that oftentimes I didn't get crazy micromanaged, you know, versus like today, you know, technically interns aren't allowed to coach, right. Quote unquote, it's a violation. So they're there for health and safety. And um, back then it was, you know, there wasn't a lot of rules in regards to that. I remember the biggest thing was like, you know, Tim Mullen, who's a, a great friend of mine, who was the assistant there. I remember him helping me with cueing on certain exercises, right? And his quote was, I'll butcher it, but it was, how do you, how do you as a, as a coach get that lift to look the way you want it to look with that particular athlete? So, and that's different for everybody. Um, you know, if you're coaching a women's, tennis athlete or a male football offensive lineman that those cues might be a little different but ultimately the 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 exercise needs to get to that end result where you're like okay that looks right i like that now you know the compliment at that point or whatever it is like just learning my my coaching style learning my voice learning when to say something when to not and i remember fitz and tim really helping me a lot with that. Um, and really a lot of that was me watching them mm. and learning from them and mimicking them. Like at the very least, when I first got there, I would just listen to what Fitz was saying and say the same thing, you know, and there's, there's something to be said for that too, where, you know, until you, like I knew what he was saying and I knew what he meant. He said it one way. He was the, he was the head strength coach. I'm just an intern. But even then, it was the energy you bring, the positivity you bring, the, the, the coaching cues you use. How, to, how does that, you know, get the athletes to do the exercise the way you want them to? Um, are, we, are you good with time? Do you have a little bit more time, Joe? Or Yeah, I got about 20 more minutes. Okay, perfect. Okay, so um, you have the internship at Harvard. You got your master's degree. Uh, walk us through kind of, uh, to the point where you're now, uh, you know, the head coach of sports performance at Arizona state. So walk us through some of your other schools that you've, uh, uh, you know, been a part of. Yeah. So I was at Harvard for a semester as an intern and then, uh, you know, Fitz knew the amount of driving I was doing, the amount of commitment that I showed uh, to, to them to help. 
And he also knew I was graduating and, you know, I graduated and he was able to provide me with a very small stipend um, and technically hire me. Um, I don't think at the time it was considered full time, uh, but I remember I made $104 a week um, and that basically covered gas uh, for me. And that gave me the opportunity to, you know, be the, be the head strength coach for a couple of different sports. Um, and also be a little bit more involved with football, like actually traveling to games. Um, and I would drive, I remember driving to like the Harvard Yale game. I remember just getting in my car and driving and telling Fitz like, Hey, I'm coming. Like if, if, if I can be there, I'll be of assistance, you know? And, and I think all, all that commitment showed, you know, and I, 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 I was able to sort of stay there long enough. It was about a year and a half and, um, and try to learn everything I could, you know, I was just at a sponge at the time. And then I remember Fitz approached me and said, Hey, we have a conference that we're all going to go to. It's the collegiate strength and conditioning coaches association conference. And I think it was in Nashville, Tennessee. So he's like, Hey, we want, we, do you want to go? Oh my, like, absolutely. I want to go. And um, he's like, you know, you, we can get you some connections. We can try to help you get a job. Um, just hang with us and we'll see what happens. So I went. Um, I'm pretty I had to pay for whatever it was, my flight or Fitz may have covered. I can't remember exactly, but I got there. And I remember it was almost the first couple moments I was there. Fitz, you know, we we're in the lobby and Fitz is like, hey, come here. He's like, that's Joe Ken right there. He's like, I'm going to go introduce you to, to, to how his, he goes by big house. I'm like, I'm going to go introduce you. He's like, he's, he's a, he's a big name in the profession. You know, I want, I want you to talk to him. And I'm like, great. So we walk over and Fitz is talking Hey, you know, how's how you doing? And we were like right outside. It was like a turnstile right outside the lobby on the street. And I remember shaking his hand, saying hello. And then just looking him in the eye for about an hour while he just talked because house can talk. And, um, he was just, he was rolling, man. House gets rolling and, and, uh, away he goes. And I remember just looking him in the eye and just talking with him. And, um, I might've said 20 words in an hour and house did most of the talking. And, you know, we go about the weekend, you know, it was like a three day deal, fly back. And might've been a week later. Um, House called Fitz and said, hey, who's that guy that I met out front that I talked to for an hour? He's like, I really liked him. He looked me in the eye. Um, I really liked him. And uh, he's like, hey, I got a job open. And he was at the University of Louisville at the time. And House was a longtime strength coach at Arizona State previously to when he went to Louisville. So away I went. Um, Fitz called me and said, hey, House just offered you a job. He's going to call you. So I remember I was at the the training facility that I also worked at and I walked outside, took the call house is like, Hey, I got a job. It's, it pays $16,000 a year. He's like, it's in Louisville, Kentucky. He's like, I want to offer it to you. I said, I'll take it. He said, when can you be there? I said, tomorrow. And he was like, he was like, good. I'll see you tomorrow. And I remember being like, 
holy shit. Like, what, what am I going to do? So I even had the conversation with my girlfriend at the time, who's now my wife. I'm like, I, I got to move. We, like, we have a rent. We have a, an apartment. There a house that we live in. You know, I got a car. You know, I got, I got all, I got bills. And I was like, I don't care. I'm going. And um, I remember going home. I told Shalana, I said, hey, um, I got a job in Louisville, Kentucky. And I'm going to take it. And I'm leaving in like an hour because it's like a 16 hour drive. So I'm going to pack my car and I'm going to go. And she was like, are you kidding me? She's like, what, what are you talking about? And I was like, I'm going, and I really want you to come with me. But if, but if you don't want to come with me, I understand, but I really want you to come with me. And she was like, and, and you know, my wife is like super detailed and super planning and organized and all that stuff. And I remember her just being like, this is insane. And I was like, well, you can call me what you want, but we're going, I'm going. And I'd like you to come too. So long story short, I went, um, and I was there the next day. And I remember living in the dorms mm -hmm. for a little while, like, cause it was cheap and, you know, barely making ends meet. I think I made a thousand dollars a month, something like that. And I lived in the facility for a while. Like, you know, I would sleep in the players lounge, just like what I, I survive on muscle milks. Like all I did was just, um, all I did was work in the weight room and it was, it was the greatest thing ever because houses pro everybody's program is a little different. And I had great mentors there, you know, house house taught me programming one on one. like that was, Hey, how to write a program, you know, what, what are the reasons why we're doing all these different things? Why, you know, what's your, what's your why for this exercise? Why does this need to go here? The running program, you know, it was a big time program at the time they were in the big East um it was phenomenal it was it was it was a master class in strength and conditioning and uh you know brian dermody was his assistant adam fight and um and myself and we trained the heck out of those guys man and it was a blast mm. um and then after a year shalana moves out there we get an apartment we're good right and i remember it was january or probably january and there was an ice storm in louisville freezing roads. Um, we had this old apartment with really high ceilings. So we were both freezing to death. Pipes froze. It was bad. And Fitz calls me who I worked for at Harvard. And he said, Hey, I just got the job at South Carolina. I'm going to be the head strength coach at South Carolina. I want you to come with me. It's like, when can you be here? I said, I'll be there tomorrow. And I got off the phone and Shalana's just looking at me and I'm like, uh, I'm going to South Carolina. I really want you to come with me. We're not married at the time. I'm like, I really want you to come with me. And she's like, are you, you're really going to leave me right now? I'm like, I got to go. Like we got, I got to be there, you know, soon. Like it, it might've been a couple days that this, this, this one was, I think a couple days, but the Louisville wasn't Louisville was like a day. And um, so I get in the car and I drive, it was only like a seven hour drive Louisville to Columbia I remember taking a picture with my phone of a palm tree and I sent it to Shalana and she, you know, sends me the middle finger back because it's freezing cold up there. And, uh, and that was 2009. And, um, so Fitz, uh, I was Fitz's assistant. Um, and one other guy that I trained, uh, Matt Thomas, who played at Harvard was the other assistant. And then we retained one guy and brought in a GA and away we went. Uh, we worked for, coach Steve Spurrier 
Um, he was a head, head football coach, so it was a fantastic experience. And Fitz was great. He actually had Coach Spurrier call me on the phone and offer me the job, which I thought was really, really cool um, at the time. And um, so I was there with Fitz from 2009. So it was 9, 10, 11. Um, he was there as the head strength coach. I was his assistant. And then he left at the end of 2011 and took the head strength coach job at Penn State uh, with head coach Bill O'Brien. And the same week I had interviewed with uh, the late Mike Leach for his head strength job at Washington State because I want to be a head strength coach, right? So I interviewed with Mike Leach, and then a day or two later before I found out what was going on with Washington State, that Fitz was leaving. And Coach Spurrier came down, and he said, I want you to be the head strength coach at South Carolina. And I was like, holy shit. I was like, okay. Um, I got. I was like, I got to call Coach Leach and tell him that I can't, you know, regardless of what he decides, I'm out because I want to stay here. And so I was a head strength coach at South Carolina uh, from 12 to 15. So 12, 13, 14, and 15. Um, and at the time from nine to 11, we, we sort of changed that program quite a bit. And we had, you know, when I took over in 12, we had the best season in South Carolina history. We had it again in 13. We were 11 and two, three years in a row. And then, um, you know, we, we subsequently had a little bit less success and coach Spurrier ended up retiring um, early on in the 2015 season. And I didn't know what was going to happen. So, you know, we've been living in Columbia for seven years and we got a house and we're doing great. And we're now married. My, my wife and I are now married. Uh, we got married in Charleston um, in 2000, late 2009, 2010. And, um, you know, that was my first experience with the possibility of being fired for something that's not necessarily your fault entirely, you know? Um, so long story short, they bring in a new head coach, you know, he wouldn't, he wouldn't talk to me. So I kind of knew the writing was on the wall. And, you know, I went to the AD and I said, Hey, what's going on here? What are we doing? And he said, Hey, he's bringing in his own guy. I said, okay, sounds good. Here's my keys. Here's my cell phone. You know, thanks. I went and cleaned out my office. I went back home. It's a bad couple of weeks, you know, down in the dumps, a little depressed, not knowing what to do. Put the feelers out, you know, around a profession that, Hey, you know, I'm, you know, I'm outdoors now, you know, I don't know what, what I got going on, but I had to find something. And um, one of my one of my friends that, that I met, uh, John Sisk, uh, was at the time he was at Vanderbilt and then he was at Georgia Tech as a head strength coach. Um, his friend, who is the athletic director at University of Massachusetts, obviously where I'm from, um, they had recently fired their head strength coach and they needed somebody. And I interviewed and I got the job. So it was about two weeks. So there I go. We're back to Massachusetts now where we sell everything in South Carolina, move to Massachusetts where we're from. So it was tremendous being home with the family, spent two years there, um, 
great two years, worked for head coach Mark Whipple, who was a phenomenal guy, um, still a dear friend of mine. Uh, he's got a house out here in Scottsdale, so we talk often. And then um, spent two years there, and then I get the call about Arizona State. And, you know, come out, interview, um, got the job, and I've been here. This is my sixth season now at, at ASU. So I know it's a long story, but um, – it's it's uh, there's so many more details to it, but um, ultimately we're we're still here and and um, it's been a heck of a journey, but I, I hope it keeps going. Okay, we're gonna wrap it up here because I know you've got meetings and stuff like that, Joe. I want to ask you just a couple more things here uh, that I'm kind of curious about. Um, let's so two things. Uh, the 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 first thing, culture. I always hear whether it's sports or business. Uh, uh, elite uh, performers in business and in athletics, uh, they're always talking about culture is everything. As a strength and conditioning coach, I know in terms of like athletics, it's going to start with the head coach. But I also know because I was a college athlete and kind of been in and out of the strength and conditioning world myself, that the strength and conditioning coach, uh, you know, upholds that culture of whatever the coaches want, right? And and a lot of times, I think in a lot of institutions and uh, schools, the strength and conditioning coach might uh, be the the uh, the enforcer of the culture, so to speak. How how do you kind of develop culture yourself, and how important and valuable is culture within athletics, within uh, strength and conditioning, and just let's just say life in general? Yeah, I mean it. It all starts with whoever's in the head seat, right? Whoever the head coach is, and what his vision of the culture he wants is. And I think it's our job to back him up in every way, shape or form uh, to sort of keep that culture moving in the right direction and make sure that that culture never wavers. Um, the head coach has so many different things going on and so many different things on his plate that yes, he is the, uh, the driver of that culture, but we're, we're his megaphone on a daily basis where his message gets conveyed to those athletes and they know that they can't deviate from that culture at all. Um, I've been places where in the off season. So for us, we, you know, we basically we're with the athletes 11 months of the year. They get four weeks off in May mm -hmm. and we're the only coach on staff that can be with those athletes all that time. There's some restrictions with football coaches. They can be around, but they can't always be there. Um, so in the offseason, we do a lot of things to maintain, develop, change, you know, manipulate the culture in that head coach's vision. And then when the season starts, one of two things happens. The head coach either continues that development of that culture or he doesn't. And I've been on both sides of that. And I think the, the great thing that, that, you know, I current the position I'm currently in with the, with, with coach Dillingham is that his belief in culture and my belief in culture are like this and his message and my message oftentimes are the same thing without even having to communicate that. And I think that's phenomenal. So he knows that in the off season, our development of culture is going to be the way he wants it. 
And then in season, all those coaches kind of, you know, get around that team and their different position groups and then the coordinators and then the head coach. And it's all, it's sort of top down uh, that push for culture development that we're still reiterating sort of on the ground floor. Um, I, you know, talk about like, it's like building a house, right? Like that culture that we develop is the foundation. And then the football coaches and the coordinators and the head coach are sort of what build the the size or the height or how many stories that house ends up being because we're not with them as much in season as, as sports performance coaches. We're with them all the time in the off season, but in season, we're just not there as often as the sole provider of the message. And in season, you know, there's a lot of things going on and a lot of, but if the culture is still the number one priority, then the culture moves in the right direction. And we still facilitate that sort of on a daily basis. Um, just a, a quick follow-up question at, at Arizona state um, for, for you and, and like, you know, the football program, what's kind of the culture that, that you and the head coach are, um, you know, in step with, what is that culture that you guys are really pushing and developing there? Is it kind of like a, a quote, a message, a few uh, words, like, you know, can you, can you kind of wrap that up for us, Joe? Yeah. I mean, we are, one of our main slogans is we work harder than anybody else in the country and we have more fun doing it than anybody else in the country. And I think that's super important. You know, again, it goes back to some of the things we talked about in the beginning with my upbringing, like the hard work, it, it's, it has to be there regardless of what your, your venture is, what your Avenue is for, for anything. It's got to be there. And the other, the other thing we say often, and, and um, this is sort of trickled down from our defensive coordinator to our team is, is we do our one eleven. So at any given time, there's 11 guys on the football field. And if you do your one of that 11, you do your job and everybody's job is a little bit easier to focus on because they don't have to worry about you. And um but again, all the cliches, the hard work, the toughness, the discipline, all those things have to be there. And the thing I like the most is that there is no deviation from the standard. Coach Dillingham sets the standard. And regardless of who you are or regardless of what you did, you have to live up to that standard. And if you don't live up to that standard, there's a repercussion. Mm. And after a few repercussions, you just won't be here anymore because that's how important culture is for us. If you're not part of that culture and you don't buy into that culture, we don't want you here because we know how bad a bad apple or a bad seed can be. We got to, we got to move on. You have to live up to our culture. You have to turn into us. We're not going to turn into you. So that, I think that's super important. Perfect. Last question in terms of like the strength and conditioning stuff. What do you, what do you feel like has been the biggest or a couple biggest changes in the last five to 10 years in terms of strength and conditioning on the, on the collegiate level? Are there a couple things that you're like, man, from, from five or 10 years ago, this has really changed for better or for worse. What, what do you got for us there, Joe? It's funny now being in the profession, as long as I have been, it's really cyclical in that it's sort of like fashion 
in that things sort of come back around, right? Bell bottoms come back around and, and, you know, different things come back around all, all the while with the research and the development and all those things sort of pushing the envelope on, on certain, like, for example, like barefoot training, mm-hmm. right? Like pretty, pretty big about 15, 20 years. I remember my advisor talking about that in graduate school, like the importance of your foot and how that works. Now everybody's got wide toe box shoes and, and, and the uh, individual toe shoes and all these different things. Right. And it, th- there's so many different things I could say, like sauna. I mean, sh- sauna has been around for thousands of years and now all of a sudden everybody, everybody's got a sauna. Cause they're like, Hey, this really works. It's like, well, no kidding. Or cold water immersion or, you know, a, a, a squat, you know, like there's just, there's certain things that are time tested and, they they work and now we're we're evolved enough as as a as a profession where we actually have research and, and backing to what we already know works and i think that's really important and the second thing is technology um technology has obviously developed quite a bit in the last decade um to the point where you know shoot you get a a camera on every rack that's measuring velocity which is measuring technique that's individualized to you. You get iPads on the rack. I mean, you can, you can be a mad scientist in a weight room. Now we have force plates. We have um, GPS on all our athletes at all times. Like, I mean, it's just the amount of data that we collect is, is immense. And um, as part of that, you know, your, your staff might have to grow because there's so many different things you need to do on a daily basis in sports performance from, nutrition, recovery, hydration, to technology, to, um, you know, sports science, to the the programming piece, the training piece, you know, the, the facility upkeep, the equipment, the culture part, um, the staff and, and, and staff management and the HR components to all those things. I mean, it, the administrative pieces of things, it's just, that's what I love about it is I, I get to wear so many different hats and, and all those hats are, are fun for me because, you know, it's, it's all, it's really all about development, regardless of any. It's either about personal development and education or development of my staff or development of the athletes. But ultimately, at the end of the day, it's all about development. It's all about improving. It's all about trying to be better every day as an individual, as a staff, as a team, as a, as a system. Um, everything is about trying to get better each and every day. Love it, man. Okay, uh, Joe. That's uh, we're gonna we're gonna end it there. I know you got stuff uh, you gotta continue to press on for 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 today. But um, do you have any final thoughts or any final words? Anything that you kind of want to leave with us? Maybe that we didn't touch on in our conversation. And then I'll do a quick outro and I'll get you out of here. Anything you'd like to leave with us? I just think that individuals need to not be scared to push themselves and get uncomfortable. Um, you know, a few years back, I read that book, the comfort crisis. And I think that, um, I'm actually reading his new book. I, I, his name escapes me. Um, it's talking about just simplifying your life, um, which is great. Uh, it's on my nightstand. I can't think of it right now. Sorry, but either way, um, getting uncomfortable and pushing yourself and continually trying to improve 
just a little bit each and every day, I think is just, it's just so important, regardless of what you, you know, you're sort of into. And also to never putting parameters on yourself and what you're able to accomplish. You know, it's just one of those things where you have to be able to do that. You know, I read David Goggins book a few years back during COVID and, you know, I'm six foot one and a half. I used to be six foot two. I'm starting to shrink 240, 245 pounds. And I just started running. Like I read his book and I started running and I've been running ever since I do a, I do a ton of running. I ran a marathon, you know, I, I, I just, I, I think that, and the main reason why I did it was because I've been lifting for so long that it's almost like it's part of my life. It's part of my process, but I was bored, mm-hmm. you know, I'm 41 years old. And I'm like, you know, it, what can I do? What can I do now? So constantly seeking out those methods and those, Uh, avenues where you can get uncomfortable and learn from. Um, I think it's really important. And I think that um, a lot of people don't do that. They just get caught in the wheel and they just keep spinning around and they get up and they, you know, they have their cup of coffee and they drive to work and they sit at their work and then they come home and then they sit on the couch and they watch TV and then they do it again and again and again. And on Friday night, they go, you know, have dinner with it. It's just, that's fine if that's what you want to do. But if you really want to, stay sharp and continue to improve as a person you have to seek out things that maybe you don't want to do great way to end it you and i could have a whole another hour and a half conversation about david goggins because he's uh he's he's on another uh human being level to say the least and uh i uh i appreciate him so i'm gonna do a quick outro i'll let you go then joe but uh thank you so much for coming on Uh, it's sunday i know you've got stuff going on you got family life career life, but thank you so much for coming on and sharing your story. Okay. No, thank you so much. I appreciate you having me and uh, maybe we'll do it again. Sure. Absolutely. You're welcome. Uh, All of you who are tuning into this episode of Curious and Candid, thank you so much. Um, Here quickly, if you'd like to connect with me, there's a couple places you can do that. Instagram, Curious and Candid podcast. And then um, you can also reach out to me through email, curiousandcandidpodcast at gmail.com. One huge favor I'd ask of all of you, uh, before you guys uh, stop listening to this episode of Joe, uh, please subscribe to Curious and Candid on iTunes and leave us a five-star rating and review. And again, thank you so much to everybody who listened to this episode. I appreciate you. I value you. And we'll catch you next time on Curious and Candid.